Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hi, and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode number 169. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. Good to have you on with me. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty questions about legalization of hemp in the United States, EWG and Procter & Gamble partnering together to revamp herbal essences, answering if brow regrowth serum really does work, and is petroleum jelly really bad for the skin? Before we get into that, let's see how things are going with our co-host, Perry. How's it going, Perry? It's it's all right. It's a little snowy here in Chicago and cold. I don't love that because it really does uh, make my skin nice and dry, which I don't like that. Do you get uh, itchy, dry skin on your shins? Uh, no, not really. Just mostly on my hands. Is that a problem that you have a bunch? Uh, just when the weather does get dry. I, I was going to say it's also cold here in California, but I feel really bad because I feel like... <laughs> So it's not the same, but it is chilly for us thin-blooded people. Uh, But my shins get incredibly dry, and it feels so good to scratch them. Well, uh, you know, you'd think as a cosmetic chemist and formulator and person who has access to a lot of skin lotions that I would use them. But, you know, I just, I usually forget. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, or it's like a doctor who smokes, you know, they know it's, you know, not good, but oh, well. Yeah, no, you know, I'm not actually, actually, I'm not against using hand lotion. Uh, and I would use it. I just, it just isn't in my routine. I forget. I'm I'm very adaptable, you know. <laughs> good. Well, uh, I hope that your hands stay moisturized as you uh, joggle in the cold winter and uh, winter equinox has happened. So spring is on the way. Ah, I'm looking forward to spring. You know what else I'm looking forward to? Some of our beauty science stories. Ooh, me too. We have a couple good ones. So um, hemp, you may have heard all over the news that hemp is now legal in the United States. So wait, wait. So I can I can go just go get pot right now and smoke? No. Um, the headlines are blown a little out of proportion. The U.S. Congress just passed a bill that legalizes the growth of industrial hemp in the United States. The bill was introduced by Representative James Comer in Kentucky to amend a previous bill that had been passed, the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, to provide for state and tribal regulation of hemp production. So what is hemp? Because you just asked, can I go out and get some pot right now? Uh, Do you know the difference between um, hemp and marijuana? No, I I don't really. I mean, I guess all I know is like hemp is like you make ropes out of hemp, but somehow it's related to marijuana. I I really don't know. I haven't looked into the subject that much. Well, um, funny story. We had a a sales vendor come into our lab and speak with us a little bit about this hemp-derived product that they were offering. And all of us chemists were sort of looking around nervously and... (laughs) One of us just meekly put our hands up and said, I'm sorry, what's the difference between hemp and marijuana? And everyone was super relieved that someone asked the question because people do get confused by it. So hemp is actually a term used for any part of the cannabis sativa plant that's primarily grown as an agricultural crop. So it's mostly used for its seeds and fiber, um, 
also has protein and oil as sort of artifacts from the uh, harvesting of it that can be used um, in cosmetics or, or other uses. And, you know, you see hemp clothing, the fibers used for that. So it also has a component that is nowadays seen everywhere called CBD. Yeah, that's 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 terribly uh, popular. In fact, I was looking on like Google Trends and the search volume for CBD oil is just huge lately. Yes. CBD is short for cannabidiol, which is a multi-ring structured system that's being studied for its anti-inflammatory properties when it's applied topically to skin or ingested. So I, I don't think it'll do anything on hair. Oh, you're 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 so cynical about that, because <laughs> because you know someone's going to come out with a, a hemp oil for hair products. Oh, they, they're already doing it. Uh, but historically, hemp derived components like CBD could only be accessed legally by formulators or whoever if the hemp was foreign grown and imported into the United States. The same for the fiber and the oil and the protein and the seeds. It had to be grown elsewhere in the world and imported into the U.S. Now with this bill, hemp can, and the products from hemp can come from U.S. grown hemp. So uh, can you explain a little bit about how hemp and marijuana are, are different? Are they the same plant or anything? They are from the same species, cannabis sativa, but marijuana and hemp are different in that hemp has low levels of THC, which is the dominant psychotropic found in marijuana, whereas marijuana has high levels of THC and low levels of CBD. So they sort of complement each other in that way. Legally, hemp can't have more than 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis, um, where it's no longer considered hemp. It has to be very low. Marijuana, on the other hand, is predominantly grown for THC. You know, people aren't using it for, well, they're using it for fun, let's be honest, or for medicinal purposes. And THC is found in the flowers and the leaves, where I think hemp is harvested mostly from other portions of the plant, like the stalk and really fibrous portions. Now, the bill is really important because it just speaks to the fact that Hemp can now be grown in the U.S. Marijuana is still considered a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substances Act. Hemp is used for other bits and pieces, but the CBD piece is where regulations are going to get very interesting. So the so the raw material suppliers are now going to start coming out with this uh, a lot. More, I guess a lot more of hemp oil or CBD oil? I think so for sure. So they're already selling cannabis sativa oil, cannabis sativa protein, and you can see some of that in your products. That doesn't mean it has CBD present in it. It's just a way to get the plant listed on the label. But for brands that are advertising actual milligram content of CBD, this is a very sticky area still. It's going to go under intensive regulation about how it can and can't be used in products because keep in mind the benefits of CBD are anti-inflammatory and acting in cellular pathways when you apply it topically or ingest it orally. So it's essentially plant-based drug delivery. So any skincare company or weirdly hair care company claiming CBD in the product, I don't think they're really going to be able to make any real claims because cosmetics can't create any phys physiological change in the body. Otherwise, that makes them a drug. And I think on your previous episodes and even on Chemist Corner, you provided a lot of information about what makes a cosmetic product. 
and what makes a cosmetic product a drug. And we can link that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm always amazed at the companies that will uh, show raw materials and claim that it's anti-inflammatory. Because if it actually did that, um, that would make the product a, an illegal drug, at least in the United States. It's uh, We have some interesting uh, regulatory framework here, but essentially a cosmetic cannot be biologically active in skin or hair. And so a lot of times you'll see claims that see what happens with something like CBD. They try to get it out there in the on the internet or in just in the public knowledge that CBD is an anti-inflammatory. But what'll happen is if you look at the advertising of the products, those the advertisers of those products or the claims you make about the products, they can't say it's anti-inflammatory because if they did, then that would make the product an illegal drug. Because topical anti-inflammatories are specifically regulated by the FDA, and there's only certain ingredients that are allowed to say that they do that. And Perry, to that point, you know, the FDA governs laws for cosmetics as a whole, and states and the federal government are regulating CBD and THC and marijuana and all that kind of stuff. So regulations in that realm, the CBD realm, do differ at a state and federal level level and for what it can be used for. So it's a very gray area right now. And I did find one interesting point. You mentioned that CBD is becoming a hot topic for searching on the internet. Nielsen, uh, who's a global analytics company that gathers consumer insights, just recently published a quick report about claims in skincare. And they paneled a, a small group of people, 300 consumers, about natural face washes and things that they were looking for in it. And They published the most wanted claims, the top 10, and then the worst 10, which were considered not very credible claims. And CBD ranked 5 out of 10 for the least credible claims. The comments for that was that they couldn't understand in this survey specifically how CBD would reduce inflammation in their skin. So perhaps it maybe is a little too soon for a lot of consumers mainstream to understand the benefits. And this is something that we'll continue to see play out over the years. But I anticipate in, in 2019, we're going to see a lot more launches with CBD, especially with a law like this, which makes it okay to grow this stuff. Exactly. All right. How about we move on to Procter & Gamble teaming up with the EWG? Oh, we promised you guys in the last episode that we would uh, come back to this story. So... In a few different publications, it's been pitched as Procter & Gamble and the Environmental Working Group, also known as EWG, have collaborated together to provide two EWG-verified seals on two new herbal essences products that will launch in January of 2019. And if you're a listener of past episodes, which many of you are, you may remember Perry explaining the EWG's certification program and how it works. As just a reminder, so this is what happens. Uh, EWG uh, is, they have a thing called the Skin Skin Deep Database where they rank the toxicity of ingredients in a, in a ridiculous fashion, if you ask me. But <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they started this program called EWG Verify where you can, uh, after you pay a certain amount of money, uh, not, not an insignificant amount of money actually, you pay money to them and then they will review your formulas they will review the uh, specifically ingredients, and at some level, they'll review your suppliers of your ingredients. And if you meet their standards, then you will qualify to get their little seal of approval stamped on your product label. 
so for brands, for small brands, this is a way to communicate to consumers that there's some independent group that you meet their safety standards. It's also kind of an implied way to suggest and, and that the current standards are not adequate. And in fact, the EWG, in, in one of their statements, they say that the program was created to fill the void left by the nation's antiquated law regulating the cosmetics and personal care products industry, implying that the products are unsafe. In my view, products are not unsafe, and uh, the the regulatory framework, while it's uh, it's it's a lot looser than say in the EU. The safety of cosmetic products over the years has been proven time and time again just by the lack of harm that's been demonstrated or caused. And, and if, if, if there is harm caused, companies quickly get sued out of existence. And we have a lot of examples recently of companies uh, with, really without a lot of evidence that got big settlements against them because people were claiming the products were harming them. It'll be interesting to see how... If, if a company is EWG certified like and it harms some consumer, uh, what, would, what would happen to the company? I and mean, would the EWG be on the hook? That's a very interesting point to bring up. How many toxicologists and safety assessors work with the EWG? How many of those scientists are on their staff? Do you know? Well, if you look at their staff list, and they have their, their list is located right on their website, uh, they do not have any toxicologist experts. Uh, so, you know, they could employ maybe some consultants, but I doubt it because they base their system on an erroneous notion that you could rank an ingredient toxicology without uh, considering the concentration of that ingredient. It's very interesting that a company that employs no scientists or toxicologists on their staff that in any ordinary instance would be a evaluating the safety of the cosmetic product based on the ingredient combinations and green ingredient cons, um, combinations that they would have this certification program. And I find it even more interesting that a company such as Procter & Gamble, a company that I know for a fact has toxicologists on staff, would allow this alleged nonprofit organization that you know, relies on on people's donations to to be in existence, that they would use their safety assessment over their own toxicologists. There's a Bloomberg article online about this alleged partnership, and it's called Revenge of the Chemists, which I actually found had nothing to do with the article. But they interviewed a senior scientist from Procter & Gamble. And this senior scientist basically said, they were doing all these consumer panels about herbal essences. And, you know, most consumers think, oh, herbal essences, it must be natural. Well, you know, it's not. It's very reminiscent in, in fragrance of, of a natural product. But many of the people in the consumer panels kept asking if there was any EWG safety taken into consideration. And the answer was no. So they opted to partner with the EWG, they being Procter & Gamble, and overhaul the brand. And I'm quoting, instead of simply sticking to its own safety testing and research, the result, two new herbal essences shampoos, which go on sale in January. So even Procter & Gamble's admitting, hey, we threw all our own safety data and research out of the window to partner with EWG because it's what the people wanted. I, t I tell you what, it's, it's, it's really <laughs> disturbing to me uh, to see a big company like P&G who 
Um, clearly, they safety test their products, and their products are already safe. They're sort of pandering to a group like this who isn't really science-based. They're fear mongers, in my view, and uh, it's really not making things better for consumers. This is just seems like a, a total marketing ploy by a big company, and uh, I, I, I don't like to see it, quite frankly. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's marketing that sells as well. I mean, it, it really is kind of what we're up against. A lot of people don't take science into consideration. And if you're listening to this and you have a friend that doesn't use science to make beauty purchases, have them listen to our podcast and see if we can't help provide them the resources to make educated decisions as consumers. Great point. I mean, I guess we'll see if how effective this is, right? Because P&G hasn't done this with their other things. Their other big brands. I mean, they have Pantene. It's a big brand. They have Head and Shoulders. And presumably, they're not going to do it with all their brands because they're they're kind of different. But it'll be curious. They're only doing two SKUs here. And Herbal Essences has a number of SKUs. So that does get into the quandary that I always wonder about. Like, okay, you have these two SKUs, which are EWG certified, right? Isn't that just kind of saying that, uh, well, all our other SKUs that are not certified are not EWG safe or whatever? <laughs> it just seems like a problem. They're shooting there. themselves in the foot. Well, time will tell, I guess. I, I, I think the same thing. Like when uh, I see brands come out with a sulfate-free version of their regular shampoo, isn't that just saying that, hey, our regular shampoo sucks, so we have this one? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a slippery slope. Ugh. This is clearly why I'm not in the marketing end of things. Yeah, I don't know how well if we had a I don't if we had a product line, I don't know how well it would do, but or maybe it would. I don't know. You, you know, on some level, I think consumers do like stories, and that's really why companies like P and G would do something like this is because they did enough consumer research testing, and the consumers are telling them, telling them, hey, we want a product like this. So, I I hope it's not successful for them because I don't like the trend <laughs> in the industry. But we'll see. You know, I could be completely. We wrong. hope 2019 sucks for herbal essences. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and well, just those two. Skews. Just those two skews. Well, let's answer some questions. The first one is from Kaylee, and she would like to know if brow regrowth serum really works. And Perry, I would like you to take this question because you actually were quoted in an article where a publication actually asked a cosmetic chemist what they thought. Yeah. I, I, and incidentally, if you are part of a publication, I'm happy to answer questions. Feel free to send us an email at thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Way early on in the Beauty Brains existence, these eyelash uh, regrowth serums were uh, really popular and they were based on um, there was a there's a product actually called Jan Marini a brand Jan Marini and they had an eye regrowth or eyelash regrowth uh, serum where you put it on your eyelashes and they actually made the eyelashes grow hmm. uh, or at least that's what they claimed years ago they were using bimatoprost active ingredient uh, on eyelashes uh, which was an off-label use of a drug, right? Mm -hmm. And it was for it was for some sort of uh, some eye condition. But what what happened is that uh, in using this drug in the for the eye conditioning, that they noticed that the eyebrows were growing thicker. And so what uh, the company ultimately it wasn't Jan Marini. It was actually a uh, a drug company 
they it was called Allergen, and they did some research and they filed a drug application, and ultimately they came out with a product called Latisse, uh, which is still available, and uh, it actually has been proven to uh, make your eye eyelashes uh, thicker and fuller and look better. Now, eyelashes are different than eyebrows, of course, but the same kind of technology is is used for the the eyebrows also. Uh, but with differing effect. Now, one of the things about eye, eyebrows, eyebrows are more closely related, that the hairs in your eyebrows are more closely related to the hairs on your head. And so when you're talking about hair regrowth serums for the brow, really you have to think about like what's effective for regrowing hair on your head. And the only ingredient proven uh, effective for general hair growth is minoxidil. Medoxidil uh, is the active ingredient in Rogaine, and it has been shown to be uh, it prevent hair loss for for uh, you know men and women. And uh, some people have tried to apply Rogaine to their eyebrows with with different effects. Uh, now, it there's really no reason that it shouldn't work for your eyebrows, just the same as it would work uh, on the hair on your head. However, it should be noted that it's only going to be work for about even the even the drug working it for the best under the base, best scenarios it only works for about 67% of people so about 2 thirds of people who use it will get an effect so another third of people don't have an effect so it's not really this uh, panacea of uh, hair <laughs> hair growth uh, which is why it hasn't really taken off in uh, uh, as far as growing back regular hair too now, I remember seeing uh, Latisse at my dermatologist's office. I go every year and get my skin checked for abnormal growths. And I always see this sign there for Latisse prescribing for thicker eyelashes. Now, what you're saying is they it technically cannot be prescribed for eyebrows, correct? Well, it, it hasn't been proven to work for eyebrows. But it's it's certainly you you could probably use that for you know off drug off drug meaning if I went in and I said my eyebrows are balding my dermatologist may say well it's for eyelashes that's what I'm allowed to prescribe it for I guess that's what I'm going at yes absolutely that that is the case when when a drug gets approved like Latisse was approved as a drug it has a specific use for it right and the specific use was your eyebrows I mean your the specific use was your eyelashes, but it might work on eyebrows. In fact, they're still they're looking at this the active ingredient uh, to be effective on uh, regular hair, your the hair on the top of your head too. But as of yet, that that hasn't been proven to work there. So, but you know, I'm certain people would try it. Yeah, people will try anything to get hair growth to come back. That's for sure. I do uh, know that. Big eyebrows are in, and if you guys visit the article that Perry's link that he's quoted in, you'll see this photo of supermodels with big, bushy eyebrows. There was a trend report that came out from cosmetic businesses in the EU that big eyebrows are going to be in, and a lot of consumers are actually going to try natural remedies to get their eyebrow hair to grow back in, such as grapeseed oil and castor oil and whatnot. And I I'm not sure how well those will really work because if people have to use the drug active that's in Latisse to try to get their eyebrows to go back with success, what's castor oil really going to do? Well, there I should say there are there there have been a couple of published studies looking at peppermint oil and lavender oil 
that have shown, and these are in mice studies that have shown, you know, that maybe they work as effectively in mice as minoxidil, for example. But the, the science on that is, is so preliminary, and it's, the, the studies to me were not very impressive because, you know, just because something has an effect in mice does not necessarily mean that's going to translate to humans. And, in fact, I don't think that uh, peppermint oil is going to get your eyebrows to grow back, uh, you know, any faster. But it is some natural thing if you're into natural stuff. That, that's the thing that has some studies behind it. I'm skeptical of the studies. And also, the, you know, we have to think of the side effects, too, you know, in using these items. Like, what's the, you know, if you're applying peppermint oil to your eyebrows, first of all, peppermint oil is a very volatile compound. It's going to volatilize and flash off into your eyes. If it gets into your eyes, you're in big trouble. And also, your skin is sensitive to sun exposure, um, especially with the lavender. It's it's not good to put lavender on the skin and then go in the sun. So I think we have to weigh the evils. But I'm thinking that people who claim they see a benefit to using these natural oils on their eyebrows to get them to grow back, it's actually just the, an ancillary benefit from taking care of the eyebrow skin. You know, a lot of people don't think about exfoliating the skin under their eyebrows or moisturizing the skin under their eyebrows. So by applying these oils and giving extra attention, I think it's just the benefit, brow hair growing back of extra attention in a skincare routine. That, that does point to a thing that you should know about cosmetics is that if you see a benefit, you're kind of inclined to see a benefit. And it's really easy to fool yourself that you're seeing something, especially if you spend a lot of money on a product. You don't want to – if you spend a lot of money on a product and you use it, you're inclined to see that it's working. Uh, if it's not working, you have a hard time admitting it's not working because <laughs> then you have to say, like, hey, I was a sucker and I bought this product. So – you are inclined to see differences where there are not. There are a bunch of products I could say, man, I was a sucker for that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you which uh, ones, though, well, because it is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the cosmetic markers are very good. <laughs> All right, let's go on to our last question here. Luli asks, is petroleum jelly really bad for the skin? Valerie, why don't you start off here by uh, talking about what petroleum jelly is? What is petroleum jelly? As a cosmetic ingredient, petroleum jelly is known as petrolatum. If you flip your product back over and look at the ingredient listing section, petrolatum will be there. In terms of characteristics and composition, petrolatum is similar to vegetable oils and waxes because they're all made up of mixtures of molecules that are mostly carbon and hydrogen atoms or you know, we call them hydrocarbons for short in the lab. Petrolatum is made up of hydrocarbons that have chains of 25 carbon atoms or more. To give you a comparison, coconut oil is made up of hydrocarbons with anywhere from 12 to 18. And in fact, most oils found in nature have molecules with less than 22 carbon atoms. Yeah, those natural oils are, they're just a lot shorter, shorter chain hydrocarbons. And um, that's, that's why I petrolatum works uh, a bit differently because the molecules are just longer. Exactly. And if you were to look at the oils neat, you know, you would find that while coconut oil is a solid at room temperature, you know, a little cooler than room temperature, petrolatum also can be harder and pretty viscous. So uh, the increasing carbon number changes the viscosity and rheology of the product and thus makes the oil have different properties. 
So petrolatum, uh, where does it come from? It's, to me, a natural molecule that is engineered. It comes from the oil refining industry, so it comes from the ground. And it originally comes from ancient organisms like dead dinosaurs and prehistoric plants. It was first discovered in the late 1850s and in 1872 was patented by the people at Chessborough and introduced as Vaseline soon after. I love Vaseline. I always I always said that it was Cheeseboro. Oh, well, you know, I, I don't know. Cheat, cheat. It's like cheeseburger that... to me. I would say ch- Chessboro. <laughs> <laughs> Cheesebro, Chessboro. I don't know. I'm sure the good folks at Cheeseboro Ponds would... <laughs> We'll be fine with being called Chessboro. Yeah, I, I've ne- actually never heard it as cheese. Maybe we could run a poll of what people think it's pronounced. I don't know. Well, going back to petrolatum, um, it's used in skincare for a multitude of reasons, including medical treatment of skin injuries. It's proven to reduce scarring. It has an antibacterial effect, and it can act as a sunscreen or used in sunscreens. I, I was actually I was actually surprised by that, but uh, it it turns out it I mean you got to kind of cake it on, mm-hmm. but it can have a sun blocking effect. It's it's not one of the sunscreens in like the sunscreen monograph, but in a pinch uh, you can put this on your skin and uh, uh, have some sun protection. Yeah, and I think that's because of the occlusive properties that petrolatum lends to the skin. Uh, it also prevents moisture loss in skin, so it's great for chap lips and hands or dry skin. In fact, my husband today said, I have these uh, little dry patches around my lips. What can I do? And I actually handed him a petrolatum-based uh, lip balm because I knew uh, it would take care of it without any irritation. Petrolatum also reduces uh, friction and makes hands feel better. So maybe instead of reaching for some of your lotions, uh, you could use that can also prevent chafing. I don't know if you have that problem uh, when you run, but if I I absolutely do. In, in fact, before I before I run for run a marathon, I, I will put on a, a good slug of uh, petroleum jelly. Oh, good. Yeah, perfect. Um, and it can also be used to treat rashes and rehydrate nails. That's actually what I use it for. I take this uh, lip balm that's petrolatum based that I use, and sometimes I'll just put it um, around my my cuticle layer. So it sounds like it, it sounds like a wonderful ingredient. Yeah, it has a lot of benefits. But if you learned something from our podcast today, there may be a benefit, but everything has a downside to it. Perry, what are some of the downsides that petrolatum has? Well, there there aren't a lot, but there are some. C- certainly, petrolatum can feel really greasy uh, when you put it on, and it's almost it's very hard to get off your hands too. Once you if you put a lot on, because it's so hydrophobic, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't it's not compatible with water at all, and so it can be a real challenge to get it to remove from your uh, skin. Many skincare formulations, uh, we we spend a lot of time as formulators uh, trying to offset that greasy feeling. Of petrolatum because while we like the benefits of it, you don't necessarily like the aesthetic feel of it. It's also a product that you shouldn't necessarily be used on your face. While some people won't have a problem with it, uh, if you are acne prone, uh, it does increase the chances that you'll have a breakout. And there are also some people who are allergic to petrolatum, and so that could be a problem too. But really, the vast majority of people, petrolatum is perfectly it's a perfectly fine and effective ingredient, and there's really no reason to avoid it. 
Although, if you go on the internet and you research petrolatum, you see lots of people claiming that it is bad for you. Have, have you noticed that, Valerie? Oh, gosh. Um, and you know what? It's a question I get all the time from friends. There's this perception that it's cancer-causing, it's going to clog your pores, it's the devil's serum. I don't know. It's very interesting. In fact, it's one of the, I think I call it the most vilified ingredients on the internet, cosmetic ingredients. Uh, And if you look at like the David Suzuki Foundation, they have a a blog post like the worst ingredients for your for your skin and petrolatum is always in there. The concerns about petrolatum are are way overblown. For example, if you go, there's a blog post I came across on the Huffington Post that claims that petrolatum jelly may not be as harmless as people think and they say it contains carcinogens and the bottom line is no the petrolatum that is used in cosmetics does not contain carcinogens it it just doesn't that's that's such an overblown fake claim uh, it that's not something people should worry about the article also makes the false claim that petroleum jelly suffocates your pores um, again, it's not suffocating your pores. This is just a, a silly claim that has been made up. Now, with all the stuff being said about petrolatum, you might wonder why why do why did anybody say stuff like that if it's not true? Uh, you have any thoughts on that, uh, Valerie? Well, I think people like to generate fear. Um, it creates buzz. Oh my gosh, petrolatum, this thing that's in my everyday products is is going to kill me. You know, it's just classic fear-based marketing, which is a super easy tactic companies can use. And it makes a much more interesting story for a place like the Huffington Post to, to write, hey, that thing that you weren't worried about, you should be worried about it. Exactly. And two, there's this whole fallacy that natural is better. And that's also a great story as well. But I have news for you. If you think about what people consider natural ingredients, you know, they're all processed and engineered from their original sources. So petrolatum natural as well. And in fact, when petrolatum is refined, there's a lot of strict regulations in place. And you mentioned that we, you know, we use a specific grade in cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. It's a, a USP grade which is refined to the standards of the United States pharmacopoeia. So nobody has to worry about anything with petrolatum in their products. So the bottom line is, uh, Lulu, that uh, no petroleum jelly is not really bad for your skin. It has some it has some benefits. If you're allergic to it or you have acne-prone skin, uh, you, you aren't going to want to certainly use it on your face. But for most people... There is not a problem, and just don't believe the vilification of petrolatum. It's a perfectly safe ingredient. All right. Thanks, Perry. Um, And thank you to all for listening. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Speaking of beauty questions, if you want to ask a question, click the link in the show notes or record one on your phone and send it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We actually prefer the audio questions because it sounds better on the podcast instead of listening to us uh users can right. I, <laughs> listen to you actually valerie we we've got we got about three or four audio questions in and we're going to get to those in the new year great great also don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts on instagram we're at the beauty brains 2018 on twitter we're at the beauty brains and we also have a facebook page 
Well, thank you, Valerie. It was a good show as always today. We'll uh, do it again next week. Uh, and uh, enjoy the upcoming new year. I'm going to get back to uh, working on my list of 100 goals for the coming year. Ooh, 100. That's one to be completed every three days. Oh, I hadn't considered that. But yeah, wow, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be busy next If you want to help. I'm a Virgo. It helps me pace it out if I if I were to do that. But uh, anyway, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. And go make a difference. Today's show is dedicated to my brother Paul Romanowski, who recently passed away. Paul was a key player behind the scenes at the Beauty Brains. He created our logo did the layout and cover for our original Beauty Brains book and the sequel, It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick. He was a talented, kind, and funny person. He was a joy to be around, and I'm going to miss him very much. If you're ever feeling depressed or despair, help is available 24 hours a day. Just call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.